Welcome back. It's February 19th. Meet Kevin Report number 28 is on the way now. Thanks so much for being here, whether you're watching on YouTube, Facebook, Twitch, you're listening to it on uh, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. Appreciate you being here. A lot to cover today. As usual, we'll talk fad real estate catalysts coming up for the week. We've actually got quite a few catalysts coming up uh, this week, and we'll want to go into some of the details on those. And then, of course, we'll also touch a little bit on you. Ukraine and some things that are not so fantastic that were just talked about, especially in relation to China's partnership with uh, with Russia. So we'll talk about all of this. Uh, Want to give you a quick hands up as well that uh, yesterday, boy, it is. Uh, uh, I I rarely uh, have the opportunity to visit family, and uh, it's uh, it's nice to uh, to be able to fly uh, and make a day trip out to Park City, Utah, uh, visit my mom. And uh, hopefully uh, we'll be able to do that with other family uh, as well. But it's, uh, it's it's pretty nice to be able to go on a day trip to visit family. Uh, that way we can keep making videos here, keep working hard in the studio, keep bringing value, uh, but still also visit family. And of course, got to check in with realtors as well, because boy, the real estate market is going nuts uh, in a bad way. Uh, we'll talk about that a little bit more, but. I'll tell you, uh, just as a, as a heads up, if, if you're trying to understand your real estate market, one of the best things you can do is just get in uh, and, and start talking to local realtors. And really, you'll get a pretty clear feel for what's going on very quickly. I think there's this there's this mindset or belief that uh, w- you know we, we have to get rid of the realtor, cut out the realtor, you know, cut them out. You don't need them. They take a commission. Oh no, we'll get our own license. It's totally the, the worst way to think about real estate. You should be thinking about uh, the people around you making more money, not less, uh, than, than, they, uh, than they're able to uh, get rewarded for, for providing you value. That's very, very important. So, but then again, you know, I think in America we have this, and I've been talking about this pretty consistently for the last few days. For example, yesterday we had we did our first Elite Hustlers live stream. Uh, so I, I do two different types of course member live streams. The course member live stream, which everyone gets access to, that's when the market is open, right? That's generally Monday through Friday. And we talk real estate market, stock market. But uh, on Saturdays now, once a week, we're doing just a business live stream. It's a smaller group, so we've got a lot more time for Q&A. It's a new live stream. And uh, it's, uh, it's, it's all about uh, increasing money and efficiency uh, in terms of your income, whether you're self-employed or, or employed. And uh, one of the biggest things that I find is uh, people regularly come in, and it's not their fault, but come in with this belief of, oh, well, I don't want to work harder because I want to hold back some and get compensated more later. Uh, you know, I don't want to get taken advantage of, so to speak. And uh, it's, it's a very traditional American mindset that, uh, you know, oh, you're owed something and that, uh, you know, maybe if you get paid more, you'll, you'll work harder. Uh, and it's, it's such the opposite. Uh, it's really what I try to uninstall from everyone's programming and in, in, uh, the courses that I have. Uh, but unfortunately, it's, it's, that's very difficult because that's our society. Our society is, is really built around this belief that, uh, oh, you don't do anything for free. You would, you would never, ever dare do something for free. Uh, and uh, what I find is the people who are most successful usually recognize that you end up very underpaid first in life, and then you end up overpaid, <laughs> but you're never appropriately compensated. Uh, but as long as you have that mindset that of, of, of 
you know, putting one foot in front of the other and, and providing great value for whether it's your client or your boss or whatever it may be. You end up, uh, you, you end up uh, getting ahead pretty quickly and, and you end up standing out amongst the, ba- uh, the, the, the bunch of competitors pretty dang fast. So pretty neat. But uh, anyway, we've got uh, we've got a lot to touch on. Uh, I think some of the uh, the big things we want to hit are uh, some unique uh, charts, uh, as well as we've got uh, some pretty clever reports out uh, from the Fed. So we'll look at those in just a moment, and uh, and, and then we'll uh, jump into Catalyst and some of the other topics. Thank you, by the way, for being here. If you're in the chat, appreciate you. I see you there. And uh, all right, <laughs> well, let's get started with uh, with the, these charts on the Federal Reserve. How do I feel about pro- SoFi? You know, I'll, I'll just quickly answer that. I get asked all the time, and I did a video breaking down SoFi's fundamentals. Uh, actually, I think, did I post that? I don't know if it was in the course member live stream or it was a separate video. We do so much fundamental analysis in the course member live stream. But one of the, uh, look, SoFi, the numbers, their last report was phenomenal. I was actually just looking at them yesterday. I'm like, man, they sold off nicely after their earnings. Uh, despite rallying at, right after, immediately after earnings, they were immediately sold after that. One of the problems, I think, with exposing yourself to financials is, Financials are going to do fantastic if, if we do end up sticking a soft landing, right? Because now you've been able to expand your loan base without actually incurring the default risk. Well, that's fantastic. That's like the Goldilocks scenario for, financi- uh, for, for well, financial institutions, whether it's banks or neobanks or whatever you want to call them, you know, new banks, whatever. Problem is, if you end up going into a more difficult recession, some of the first places that suffer the the largest defaults tend to be financial institutions, whether they're banks, new banks, credit unions, uh, lenders like Upstart, lenders like a firm. And a problem you have here is if you go into a tougher recession, you could basically guarantee that financials get wrecked. However, if you go into a harder recession, you're not necessarily able to guarantee, you would you'd think generally yes, but you're not necessarily able to guarantee that uh, companies that are the backbone of future investment are going to get wrecked as badly. That would be chips, energy, and uh, specific pricing power stocks or, or, big, or, or newer stocks that still have a lot of growth in them. Uh, so I think there's that sort of divergence that you risk. And I think uh, in a soft landing scenario, yeah, SoFi could end up being great. But uh, any kind of increased recession risk would likely drive the stock down. And I think that's why it sold off uh, as much as it did uh, after, um, after its earnings. My thought. So, so I'm not saying it's a bad stock. Uh, but uh, I will say that I, it's, it's not one that I uh, probably wouldn't be investing in in this sort of macro environment that we're in. So maybe I'm just a little scaredy cat about the finances. <laughs> Oh, well. Now we got to talk Federal Reserve because, boy, we've got a lot of different reports coming out from the Fed and one from The Economist that's really phenomenal. We'll be going through uh, in this video here. And we'll also be talking about how you don't want to experience JOMO or FOMO. Yes, there is now literally a JOMO. And we'll break that down all uh, in this segment. So first, uh, let's start with a few charts that uh, initially might make us a little nervous, but then we'll balance that off with maybe a little bit of uh, peace of mind. Who knows? We'll see. Let's balance out what's going on in the market because there's a lot of noise. So here's the first chart we've got to pay attention to. I'll actually keep myself removed so that way you can see all of it. This first chart 
is the five-year break-even chart. Now, we've been studying this all year long. So you should already, if you're a regular viewer of the channel, should already be uh, pretty familiar with this and uh, hopefully familiar with this you know, nice downtrend that we were having on the five-year break-even. It's not perfect, but we had a pretty decent downtrend here on the five-year break-even. Unfortunately, that has somewhat uh, gotten destroyed a little bit over the last month, and that's because we've gotten data out from January, like hot jobs data, hot PPI data, hot uh, CPI data. Uh, so our trend that we're really paying attention to looks a little bit more ceilinged like this, but it's difficult to call it a trend because, well, you know, you know you're kind of just re-accelerating on the five-year break-even curve. Now, what is this curve and why is it so important? Well, the five-year break-even, as a quick recap, is essentially your bond market's expectation of inflation. And anytime we get this sort of resurgence in the five years, especially if we start breaking trends or now we're making harder to actually create trends, it's a sign the market is more uncertain about what the future actually holds and the market is pricing in higher rates of inflation, usually coinciding with that, you're getting a higher terminal rate from the Federal Reserve. Now, in the long grand sort of scheme of this chart over the last year, the chart is straight down, which is phenomenal. It's essentially straight down. Uh, however, even that essential straight down chart, uh, trend line has somewhat broken a little bit, right? You're starting to see maybe that move up. And if you were to trend it like this, eh, that's not too much of a trend. That's a two point trend. Eh, maybe you call a third point over here. Point being, you've got nervousness about a resurgence of inflation. And that resurgence in concerns over inflation uh, suggests we're, first of all, a lot further away from the 2018 Federal Reserve, uh, you know, sort of U-turn at the end of 2018, where the Federal Reserve decided, you know what, we're not going to continue raising rates. And all of a sudden, the market had its greatest rally throughout uh, the first six months of 2019 after the pain of the end of 2018. But inflation expectations there were sitting around 1.6%. Right now, they're sitting somewhere on 2.5%. We're almost a whole percentage point now away. We were starting to trend to breaking two, but then we shot right back up thanks to the January data, which is not great. Now, to offset that, fortunately, financial conditions have immediately tightened a little, actually quite a bit, which helps the Federal Reserve relax on this idea that they need to be so excessively aggressive. Here is a chart of the financial conditions index as put together by Goldman Sachs. And you can see financial conditions in the month of February have tightened quite a bit. And specifically why they've tightened? Well, it's this trifecta of pretty rough reports that we've gotten uh, from, again, either jobs uh, or uh, CPI or PPI. On top of this, real rates in the United States compared to the rest of the world are now probably at some of the highest levels that we've seen over the, well, this certainly that we've seen in this tightening cycle, but they're also relative to other countries that are relatively modern economies uh, like ours. We're seeing some of the tightest conditions on real rates. Take a look at this particular chart here. It shows you that real policy rates in major global economies are positive in the United States and Canada, with the United States at real rates at positive 0.95%, Canada at 0.7%, and New Zealand, Switzerland, Norway, Australia, Japan, the United Kingdom, the Eurozone, in aggregate, and Sweden, still actually negative with real rates. Now, the way they calculate real rates is you're basically taking 
rates where they are and then subtracting inflation from that annualized inflation generally. So this is where you're getting where real policy rates sit. And uh, the United States is finally in an era of positive real rates, which that's what you generally want to try to crimp the economy. To stick a soft landing, you have to take the heat out of the economy, and you generally do that once real rates become positive. The Federal Reserve has never paused their hiking cycle until these rates have gone positive, and the good news is they are positive now. And in combination, or should I say maybe in conjunction with real rates actually going positive and Jerome Powell suggesting, hey, you know, maybe we can just continue to sort of look through the January data, we've actually seen some pretty substantial surges in particular sectors of the stock market at the beginning of 2023. You can see consumer discretionary, cons communication services, IT, tech, right? These are some of your biggest gainers at the beginning of 2023 relative to what were the gainers like utilities, energy, and staples. And those becoming losers at the beginning of 2023, despite them having been the gainers in 2022. Now, obviously, we know that the break-even rates are moving up on the five-year. That's not great, but at least it's being offset by tighter financial conditions and real rates. And really what it does is it says, look, we just have more work to do. That's obvious at this point. But with some of the hot reports that we've gotten, there is this concern that the Federal Reserve is potentially going to come out with some form of 50 BP hike or some kind of rug pull, basically. And I'd like to point to Mr. Barkin uh, from the Federal Reserve who was uh, quoted over here in a Nick T article that circulated pretty much right after Loretta Mester and right after <clears throat> Mr. Bullard suggested, oh, you know, we were actually four 50 basis point hikes. Pretty much right after that, Nick T ends up sharing this article of the Wall Street Journal, an article that he wrote on Barkin's stance on it. Now, one of the reasons this is so important is because Nick T is generally deemed to be sort of the mouthpiece of the Federal Reserve, Kind of where we don't know this, but we can sort of suspect that Jerome Powell probably texts Nick T and says, hey, you know what, can you massage the messaging like this today? It kind of feeds into the idea that the media is sort of just the mouthpiece of the government anyway. But uh, anyway, so <laughs> we don't want to go tinfoil hat here. So uh, anyway, let's keep going. So what do we have uh, in, this, uh, in this piece over here? And fix this darn cable over here. Uh, what we have is basically Barkin suggesting that uh, he's a big fan of continuing with 25 basis point hikes uh, and getting rates above to really that 5% uh, range. We know we unanimously moved to about 4.5%. But what is interesting that Nikki T shared this piece where Barkin suggests he likes the 25 basis point path because it gives us the flexibility to respond to the economy. Basically, it lets you just say, hey, we'll just keep hiking for longer, but we're not going to go with more aggressive sort of 50 basis point hikes. I think that's basically priced in. I think we had some fear mongering of this 50 BP hikes. I personally don't see that happening. I think this Nick T article reconfirms that, especially as potentially a mouthpiece of the Fed. And uh, Barkin suggested that regarding the January reports, and this is actually really powerful uh, also, not just reiterating 25 BP hikes, but also because, hey, what's the Fed saying about these January reports? Well, what's fascinating is this section right here where Mr. Barkin said, economic figures over the last two weeks have shown surprising resilience in spending and hiring. But, and here's the big one, this is a big but, but 
He added he wasn't ready to substantially revise his outlook because the potential for unusual seasonal volatility, including a longer holiday spending season in the fourth quarter, warmer weather, and changes in how employers are managing the size of their workforce given recent difficulties in hiring. Now, this is really interesting. I mean, think about this for a moment. This winter has been bizarre. We had a colder December, but we had a warmer January. You almost had, as many are saying, a spring-like January. And what's interesting about that is in the last CPI report, for example, we saw this big boom all of a sudden in apparel spending. Apparel has been one of those good sectors that has been plummeting from an inflation point of view. Why all of a sudden is it up? essentially 9.2%-ish on an annualized basis. Or sorry, I think it was 9.6 because it was 0.8 month over month. That annualizes out to 9.6% annualized inflation. That's insane. Why would apparel be moving so hot? Well, some are arguing it's because since January was hotter, you ended up having people buy potentially spring clothing in January. Now, what's interesting about buying spring clothing in January? You might think, come on, like, who cares? Like, if you buy it in March versus January, what's the difference? Well, the difference is the same thing that happens with winter clothing at the end of the uh, winter season is the opposite of what happens with spring clothing in winter. Let me explain that for a moment. And I think the easiest way to do that is graphically because I think that might have sounded a little confusing. But... If let's say your winter season, your winter selling season is October to January, your merchandise for the winter season is going to be most expensive in October. It's probably going to be most full price in October, and it's probably going to be at the lowest cost uh, in, uh, in January, February, or it's most discounted. That's because at the beginning of the season, people go buy their winter clothes. And at the end of the season, they don't really need any more winter clothing, so the apparel companies discount the winter clothing. But when would spring clothing generally be the most expensive? Well, probably around January, <laughs> because it's the beginning of the spring era. It's the beginning of the spring shopping era. So there is this potential idea that a warmer January could have actually led to a spike in apparel costs. And that really, maybe what J uh, Mr. Barkin here was saying is, hey, look, this was a weird winter. It's also a unique era coming off of massive seasonal adjustments where not only are we no longer using two years of data because of the pandemic for weightings, we're only using 2021, which is the first time we've only done one year uh, in, in recent history. Uh, and now we have a substantially higher weighting to certain categories, especially like housing, which we already know are running hot and the transitory sort of, or maybe I shouldn't say the transitory, but the, the disinflation hasn't actually started occurring in those sectors. So you do have this, this potentially bullish look-through argument that's happening at the Federal Reserve. Now that puts quite a bit of weight on the next CPI reports, right? Obviously on March 20th, uh, or sorry, on March 22nd, you're going to have the next Federal Open Market Committee meeting uh, end, and then you'll have the JPOW press conference. But obviously, the next CPI and the next jobs report are probably going to be more critical than what we actually had in January. Now that's wild. 
but because of the seasonal adjustments, you're actually putting more weight on these next reports. The next CPI report, by the way, is March 14th, because if we end up seeing something like a spike in January and then a correction sort of back to trend uh, in, in February, then maybe the Federal Reserve would be inclined to actually look through the hot data of January that we got. If we ended up getting two strong reports in a row, we could end up seeing that March FOMC meeting and the summary of economic projections revised up. In other words, the terminal Fed funds rate. What if we start seeing something like a 5.75 or even a six handle? What if the Fed thinks GDP is going to be higher for longer and therefore they might have to hike more? Right? These are all things to obviously consider. Now, The Economist gives us a little bit of color into how successful the Federal Reserve has been when it comes to landing a soft landing. They actually suggest that a soft landing originally came from this idea of the Apollo 11 mission, where the goal was basically to take some heat off the engine, so to speak, and softly land the lunar lander without crashing it, right? Unfortunately, the last time we tried to, well, the last major time we tried to do this in the 70s, Paul Volcker ended up pushing us into, as they say here, major and successive recessions, as well as the worst joblessness since World War II. And so when we look at, hey, are we going to have a soft landing or not? It's somewhat worth looking at, well, how successful has the Fed been? And The Economist gives us some insight into that. They say, if history is any guide, fears of missing the soft landing are likely to return. It's not that soft landings are impossible. Since the 1970s, Fed policymakers have managed them twice. We had soft landings in 1984 and 1995. America's stock market began to rally just as interest rates reached their peak, and investors who bought early were rewarded with sustained multi-year bull markets. Obviously, if you're heavily invested in stocks right now, you're hoping for a soft landing, which a soft landing could be no recession, or it could be a very, very, very minor recession without a meaningful increase in unemployment. And that could happen if it's sustained by inflation essentially plummeting, unsticky or sticky rather, inflation becoming unsticky and going away. Uh, and hopefully, 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 uh, a, a, a uh, you know, a company earnings cycle over the next uh, year and a half here that doesn't end up substantially below estimates that end up leading to some sort of you know, earnings per share crash in, in markets. But anyway, <clears throat> there have been six other tightening cycles in the last 50 years. And all of the other six, unfortunately, were followed by a recession. And the lesson for the or from The Economist here is that if out of eight times you were only able to land a soft landing twice, you have about a 25% chance of sticking a soft landing just based on history's guide. That means you have a 75% reason of believing that a soft landing is just a myth that perpetuates a sort of bear market rally. Now, a lot of January's bear market rally was really driven by, one, retail, retail plowing over a billion dollars a day into the stock market in January, and number two, short covering, Institutions caught off sides, thinking shorts would continue to protect them in 2023, only to get squeezed. The squeeze has been squoze. 
Now, we'll have to see how markets react to this data, and we are going to end up getting a trend. But what else does The Economist tell us? Well, for soft landings, generally, once the Federal Reserve began to cut rates in soft landings, the bad news ended. Once the Fed cut rates in soft landings, bull markets ensued and you had multi-years of positive returns. Whereas in hard landings, you actually still had the worst worst parts essentially to come. Weaker employment, weaker housing, weaker earnings per share at, uh, at, at companies. Now, one of the things to consider, because it always comes up, even though I've made a plethora of videos about the darn Fed Reserve pivot, it's important to remember that when the Federal Reserve ends up pivoting in this cycle, they are doing so because they realize they have achieved, or at least they believe they have achieved, fighting inflation, right? This cycle, the Fed only pivots when inflation is convincingly falling or gone towards 2%, right? So when you get a Fed pivot in this cycle, you're actually expecting probably the most bullishness from markets, even though some folks like to point to charts that are very misleading, suggesting that, oh, if the Fed pivots and reduces rates, the worst is yet to come. That would really imply that the Federal Reserve pivoting on inflation is not why the markets are rotating down. Markets are generally pretty concerned about uh, the Federal Reserve uh, and its fight against inflation. Though, we could also see the markets uh, manifest fear thanks to an earnings crush, right? Uh, you know, we, we could end up having a Fed pivot and inflation ends up being gone, but how bad did things get from the Fed's uh, lagging policy rate increases? And that's where the question is, is the stock market pricing in uh, an EPS crush or is this stock market more concerned with the odds of inflation staying around sticky and for longer and essentially inviting a new Volcker era. My personal belief, obviously, uh, we've said this pretty regularly on the channel, is that we're likely over 2023 to have a lot of noisy data, ups and downs and volatility, but I am a big believer in the Nike swoosh recovery where we probably, although it's obviously not certain, have, uh, have probably recognized some form of bottom behind us. And this Nike swoosh recovery is probably going to look quite volatile on the up and down, but it really reiterates the idea of essentially buy the dip in 2023, which was not the 2022 strategy. 2022 strategy, where if you really wanted alpha in 2022, short. The shorting was the way to get alpha in 2022. That's probably a lot more risky in 2023, but we'll see. The Economist takes a little bit of a bearish point of view, though, and that's in contrast to my point of view. They suggest that the stock market is really a bad guide for suggesting if you're going to be in a situation where the stock market has bottomed and will continue to go. In fact, what's more of a guide, in their opinion, is the, the, the history of previous Fed tightening cycles and how soft landings that have occurred were generally preceded by relatively low inflation, accompanied by looser bank lending. Well, unfortunately today, we have exactly the opposite. We have high inflation and actually tightening lending standards. And the fear is that those are going to lead to job losses and crushes in earnings. Of course, this is where I respond and look at, well, leading data, whether that's in hiring or the supply of labor, actually suggests that we shouldn't be seeing 
a labor-induced inflationary regime continuing any more than maybe the first few months of this year. As we've talked about many times before on the channel, whether that's the excess supply we have of drivers for Uber, Lyft, the excess availability of people in tech uh, at Starbucks, at Chipotle, look at Cloudflare's earnings call, look at what Procter & Gamble and Tyson and Johnson are saying. All of them are saying, look, there's some embers of inflation, but we're at a limit in terms of how, many, how much more we could really raise in prices. Maybe we're on our last cycle of price increases, and that's it. Then, then we're then our margin is getting squeezed if if costs continue to go up. Uh, however, we're starting to see that light at the end of the tunnel that the second half might start looking more disinflationary, or at least you'll see a pause of inflation. So that's that's an idea. You've got insights on both sides saying, look, inflation could continue to drive us into an earnings recession, especially if it stays around stickier for longer. But I'm of the mindset that as long as inflation can get conquered the entire reason we need tighter rates is not structural it's solely inflation based which is the result of us printing as much money as we did during the COVID cycle so we'll see some say hey you know a recession is exactly what we need we need a recession we need to force a recession so we can actually make sure we get rid of inflation maybe it's entirely possible that we have to slightly force a recession. And this is where some folks say, you know what? If there is no recession, you could actually end up having a worse outcome. Here's a piece uh, from uh, Stephen Blitz who suggests that the data we're seeing now is pointing us to a recession. Whether you look at the inversion of yield curves or you look at retail data, uh, hey, this, yes, January, we had a nice little pop on retail could be based on some of the seasonal factors that I've explained earlier, but, and, oh, there goes Siri. Go away, Siri. There we go. Uh, but take a listen to this quote right here. Employment is a lagging indicator until it is coincident with the start of a recession. Nevertheless, activity is slowing. Real policy rates are positive. The curve is inverted, inverted and still sticking, and we are still sticking with the mid-year recession call as a base case. If there is no recession, Outcomes will be worse, suggests Stephen Blitz here. And I think the reason he suggests that is because it'll, without an actual slight recession, you keep inflation higher for longer. You don't want inflation higher for longer. You want that inflation going away. Fortunately, from at least what I'm seeing in company earnings calls and reports, is that inflation should be continuing to go away, especially once we get that housing data showing a decline in owner's equivalent rents and then services maybe leveling out thanks to finally less wage pressures. Maybe, maybe by the end of 2023, we don't end up having sort of a double dip surge of inflation. We can get rid of inflation. We'll see. Uh, but this idea about, uh, about no recession potentially being bad because it keeps inflation ignited is something to consider to where maybe that's just what we need. As a healthy part of the cycle, you go through a shallow recession and that's what it takes. Uh, this individual suggests that the economy's slide towards a contraction is looking normal. In other words, it's looking like that is exactly the path we're on. Uh, however, by threatening to hike by 50 basis points, financial conditions have become less easy. And ultimately, you could end up seeing more pain in the stock market here in the short term, as well as dragging down discretionary income. So in other words, while all of these, these indicators that... Mr. Blitz is looking at, such as the inverted yield curve, real positive rates, uh, and the lagging effects of uh, a hiked monetary policy. 
Mr. Blitz thinks, hey, you don't want to get too hawkish here because then you could really push us into more pain. <laughs> so you've got a lot of, of, of these sort of perspectives on where the markets could go. And it's kind of frustrating because sometimes it feels like they're all pointing in different directions, but I think they're actually not. I actually think they're pretty clear. I think it's very clear that yes, the economy is trending towards a recession. Yes, the odds of no recession and that Goldilocks sort of soft landing is only 25%. That is according to The Economist, as we already reviewed. All of that indicating we are trending towards a recession. Yeah, we had retail sales spikes and some data spikes in January, but we think those are mostly seasonal until we get confirmation that they're not, especially a January sort of adjustment cycle. It's too soon to say that, oh, that's it, here's the second wave of inflation, especially with leading indicators suggesting that uh, from companies, hey, it's getting easier to hire, there's more availability of labor and more availability of labor kind of suggests that eventually the unemployment rate will probably rise, just like the Fed is looking for. That would also suggest trending towards that recession. But all of these down arrows also suggest inflation goes away, right? You, as long as we're trending towards a recession, we should see inflation go away. And since inflation expectations are anchored, we really hope that we don't end up seeing a second wave of inflation. And this is where the Fed really has to guide us dangerously close to that recessionary line where, yep, maybe we end up having to dip slightly below before we come out. But there's very little, at this point at least, that suggests, hey, look, we're definitely not trending to a recession. I don't think there's anything that says, oh, everything's up. We're definitely not trending to a recession. Yes, you could point to temporary retail sales data, but I think that's more of this floating arrow here where you're still on a trend towards a recession, but yes, you're maybe slightly above that recessionary line. I don't think there's anything glaring that's like, we're definitely not going to a recession. Uh, then, although that would be the most ironic, right, if we end up not having a recession because this has been such a predicted recession. Uh, so I don't think you necessarily have data that suggests, okay, definitely no recession. While at the same time, I also don't think you have data that suggests, oh, we're definitely in hell over here in terms of the data is so terrible. Right, consumers still have substantially more savings. Uh, and, and sure, while the excess savings rate has declined, and a lot of people are, in my opinion, using that as, uh, dare I say, uh, clickbait. Uh, it's the excess savings rate. You can Google the excess savings rate, but I'll go ahead and pull up the chart for it. And the personal savings rate has fallen substantially even below prior levels of before the pandemic. You could see that on the chart here. Actually, let me remove myself so you could see that a little bit better. We're at one of the lowest personal savings rates that we've seen uh, really since about the, uh, the, the uh, 2005 era where the personal savings rate fell to around levels where it is now. But look at pre-pandemic, you have the personal savings rate substantially higher than where we sit today. Uh, and historically, the personal savings rate has been a lot higher. So certainly people are not saving like they used to. And if we zoom in to just maybe the last 10 years here, you can see we're certainly at the lowest levels of a personal savings rate. And that is starting to slightly tick up. You saw it slightly tick up in December. Uh, however, it's very, very low. The way to offset this idea though, that this is definitely bad news, that this is definitely this giant arrow to the downside, 
is by remembering, and I've mentioned this a few times over the past few days, so forgive me for sounding redundant, I just think it's so important, remembering that the average checking account of somebody who had $2,500 to $5,000 in uh, the era before the pandemic, so like 2019, now sits at an average of $12,800 of excess savings. That's different from that personal savings rate. Yeah, the personal savings rate might be low, but if you're sitting at two and a half to four times as many savings, maybe you don't actually need to continue saving that much and you're still able to spend in markets and in the economy. So point out of all of this, this entire segment is, yeah, you gotta join me on those programs on building your wealth down below, obviously. But really the big bottom line out of all of this is when I try to reconcile all of the noise, I'm not seeing things that are so terribly bad that I believe I need to be completely out of the market. I did feel that in January of 2022. I do not feel that here in February of 2023. I also don't feel like things are so glorious in the economy that we're definitely going to avoid a recession and that we're definitely going to the moon. So that to me says, I don't wanna be all cash and I don't wanna be heavily in margin. And that's where I think the easiest way to sort of reconcile all of these perspectives is probably, and of course you've got to personally come up with your own allocations, I can't do it for you, but I probably think it, may, I think it makes sense to be exposed to equities and certainly you know, a bond portfolio, maybe a 60-40 invested portfolio to the tune of maybe 80%, 80, 85%, 90%, maybe keep that 10, 15% around to psychologically help with some of the volatility that we're going to get. But that's been my, my thesis for about the last three months. And uh, it, it is, it's been pretty consistent. Uh, and so uh, ho hopefully that helps uh, guide a little bit uh, how, how all of this noisy data doesn't necessarily all have to point to deep dark recession or moon. It actually could just point towards, okay, yeah, this is the process of a Fed managed disinflation process. Could end up going to crap. Fed could end up breaking something, but I would call that a tail event. Let me actually draw that graphically. So a tail event is really when you look at the bell curve of uh, probability outcomes. So you look at a bell curve, this is not necessarily the best bell curve over here, but you end up with tails, right? So you have a left tail and you have a right tail. These are sort of your lower probability events outside maybe the 5% uh, range. So if you look at uh, you know two standard deviations off of the midpoint, you're probably, if I'm drawing a bell curve correctly over here, you're probably at over here, looking at maybe roughly 2.5% probability and over here 2.5% probability. Maybe it's a little greater, but I think everything everything going to hell, in my opinion, is probably over here on that 2.5% chance. And everything just straight going to the moon without any kind of volatility, you know, Larry Kudlow V-shaped recover, probably in the order of a 2.5% chance as well. Uh, whereas I think there's much greater uh, of this, yes, look, volatile Nike swoosh, and that's that's at least where where I'm placing my bets. Uh, could be wrong, but it's where I'm placing my bets. And I always like to say that because I put my money where my mouth is, even though I change my mind a lot, uh, I do put my money where my mouth is. So hopefully that was insightful on uh, my thoughts on the latest with the Fed and also those seasonal reports and insights we get from Nikki T. Okie dokie. Now we've got, uh, let's do, uh, let's take a look at some uh, comments that y'all have. 
And uh, then we've got a bunch of other things to cover as well. So, <laughs> petition to bring back Bloomberg codes. You know, they got rid of Bloomberg codes, right? You know, they're, they're now using like an iPhone app and, and QR codes and stuff. So, I don't really have those anymore, but those would be really cool. Mm. Bonds know better, and they continue to retrace. Well, that's generally the, the idea, right? And, and really what happens when bonds go up, when bond yields go up is, because they're actually going down, right? Uh, you're, you're tightening financial conditions. And as you tighten financial conditions, you're actually doing the Fed's job to some degree for it, right? The Fed can be more dovish when financial conditions are tighter. So, uh, you know, that's, that's fantastic. Now, and then of course you have this question here, why is the risk-free rate 5%? It's because your opportunity cost of sitting out the market is actually substantially high. You know, if, if, uh, if we do end up landing a soft landing, which I think is, is probably the base case, which could be a shallow recession or, or, or a very close recession, uh, you, you're probably going to sit out on massive equity returns or even bond returns, right? So if you were to invest today and in a year from now, the S&P 500 is, is up, you know, 15%, but you were all in on a 5% risk-free rate, well, you just missed out on 10%. Uh, and so that's, uh, you know, that's, that's pretty important. Oh, that reminds me, we didn't talk about Jomo. Uh, we're supposed to talk about Jomo. So uh, let's touch Jomo really quick because I thought it was very fascinating is you have this, this idea uh, about the joy of potentially missing out. And I think this is really like a bear, I hate to say it, who's lost his mind. Uh, he literally writes Jomo. This is the opposite of FOMO, fear of missing out. It's the joy of missing out. And Scott has crazy, or has Jomo on the crazy stock market for now while earning 5% on six month T-bills. And, and basically this reiterates this question that we just got like, hey, look, the risk-free rate on like, you know, like six monthers or whatever is, is basically sitting at close to 5%. Why? Why would you invest in equities? If the average long-term return of equities is, you know, 7% without dividends, uh, maybe 9.1% 9, 9 with dividends reinvested over the last 40 years, why would you bother investing in equities? And you really wouldn't, right? You really wouldn't. Like the spread between the next 12 months even of earnings per share on the S&P 500 and the six-month T-bills is only 50 basis points. That is a very, very, very low spread. It basically says, why bother with the risk of the stock market, right? And US money managers are sitting on the sidelines with $6 trillion of money ready to invest. And that actually uh, is leading a lot of people to say, hey, they're just gonna sit on the sidelines and milk their 5% or whatever. But there is a very big counter trend to that, which says, well, if we did have a soft landing, you're gonna get caught off sides if you're sitting in your 5% T-bills because you're gonna be that person who's today going, ha ha ha, I'm making 5% risk-free. Meanwhile, the stock market maybe looks back at you in two years and goes, ha ha ha, two years went by and we, while you made your 5% per year, we made 15% per year, right? That's possible. Of course, with that risk, comes the chance also that it's actually equity bulls who end up sitting off sides and they end up getting screwed with another 20% downside again. Nobody really knows, but uh, I'm staking my uh, my poll, so to speak, you know, with the uh, with the bulls on this one for, for equities. All right, now we'll actually get into uh, some of the other commentary and comments that you'll have.
All right, invest in a Tesla bot, lol. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, well, I do agree with you that things have gotten very expensive. I was talking to uh, my dad about this quite a bit yesterday about how, you know, it feels like you're getting ripped off going to like Panera Bread or Panda Express right now because you just get a basic meal at Panda Express and it's like $19 now. And it's like, what the hell? You know, what happened? I remember as a child, you get pork fry rye and, and, and you know, as, as your, your, your side and, and, and a couple, uh, uh, you know, a couple proteins and, and, you know, you're talking like a $7 meal. Uh, it's, it's gotten kind of crazy. So anyway, uh, it's pretty wild. This is why you diversify. It's actually a very good point. It is why you diversify. Uh, that's why I'm a big fan of diversifying into real estate. Not quite yet, obviously, in this macro cycle, but generally in the long-term scheme of investing. I'm a big fan of a 50-50 portfolio, which is 50% equities and 50% real estate for people who are uh, still building their wealth and not in the retirement phase of life where maybe like a 60-40 is a little bit more appropriate. I know financial advisors are big fans of like, no, you want a combo of bonds and stocks. I'm a big fan of, bond, uh, uh, of, of stocks and real estate. Real estate sort of taking the place of bonds for me. Big fan of that. What do you make of the recent change in the terminal rate projections? Yes. Yeah, so we, we talked about this uh, quite a bit, that the stock market basically and the bond market have switched from pricing in about 173 basis points of cuts in 2023 to no cuts in 23, and actually moving to a terminal rate of sitting at about 5.32 right now. It's roughly where the terminal rate is now. Uh, relative to the 4.9 that we've seen recently. And what's really remarkable is while financial conditions have tightened in response to those expectations, it's been mostly in bonds. Bond yields have gone up, but the stock market hasn't really given back a lot of the gains that it's had over the last 45 days in, in 23 so far. Uh, and it's kind of remarkable because you would think that as financial condition, conditions are tightening, bond yields are going up, you would think that the stock market would give back, right? But look, here's the NASDAQ since literally the beginning of the year, straight up, and you've barely given away anything. If anything, you're sitting on the shelf of about 300 on QQQ over here, uh, and you've barely given away anything. I mean, on its high, you had a close of 309. So sure, you could say you had a 3% give back. But I mean, that follows going from you know 262 to 300, uh, which is about a 14% rise uh, to, to where we are now. So yeah, okay, you've given back a tiny little bit, but, but you've, you've mostly stabilized. Uh, relative to some of the data we got in the tightening of financial conditions, you would have expected maybe the NASDAQ returning to its 200-day moving average. Maybe that'll still happen. But, uh, but you, the fact that you didn't get that does show the stock market is somewhat believing that, okay, maybe, maybe it is possible the uh, uh, markets are um, seeing the January data as, as a you know, seasonal abnormality with, uh, with big old adjustments. <laughs> Someone says, don't put your eggs in one basket. And then somebody else says, eggs are a good investment. <laughs> you know, egg, egg prices have fallen. So I think they are coming off the top a little bit. Uh, so <laughs> I think we should be okay. Uh, Tesla to start taking over a miner in Mexico. This is true. I've seen a lot about uh, this, uh, and, and Tesla's 
I've been talking about that quite a bit as well. This idea that they they want to take more control of supply chains, which would you you can't blame them for at all, right? It, it totally makes sense. So uh, I think now uh, it's it's worth taking just a brief look at what's go, what's going on with these uh, these fears of uh, I hate saying it, but it's it's just it is something we need to pay attention to. It's really these World War Three fears. And so I'd like to just take a brief moment uh, to discuss a, a two-minute video from uh, what our Secretary of State is saying, along with some other data points. So uh, let's touch on that. Give me stand by for like 10 seconds here, and we'll get into that. You know what we need is transition music next time. Oh, here goes Alexa. Man, how I, I swear I want to throw that thing against the wall. <laughs> but I think I actually have some suspense music. Oh, yeah, here we go. Tell me, what does something like this sound like? Let's see. Um, would it be this one? <laughs> That's what we need. Transition music. <laughs> That's the way to do it. Uh, all right, let's go ahead and hit it. Now we gotta talk about World War III and what the Secretary of State just had to say. First, let's set this up for you. People hear about World War III and they think, what's Russia and Ukraine got to do with World War III? Well, you gotta look at it this way, folks. You've got two massive axes and I hate using that as a reference, but I think it's appropriate. Consider this, you got Russia on one side, who's now since uh, the uh, Cold War, so the first time since the 1970s, started loading nuclear missiles, strategic and tactical localized nuclear missiles onto ships for the first time since the 70s. But you have the uh, alliance between not just Russia uh, and Belarus, but you've also got now the strengthening alliance between Russia and Iran, which this is quite prob problematic because Iran basically supplies weapons to Houthi rebels in Yemen who like to uh, you know, strategically attack uh, countries in the region, uh, including the United Arab Emirates. This is not great. You have a lot of regional tension here, and Iran is basically feeding this while at the same time, the United States takes over fishing vessels and sometimes captures thousands of uh, uh, rifles like AK-47s or hundreds of thousands of bullets, ammunition, 5.56, you name it. Uh, and, and, and the United States Navy is, is taking these weapons and bullets. And usually what the United States does is they take these weapons and they destroy them. But now they're actually thinking about taking these weapons and potentially... And this is against the United Nations conventions on this, potentially sending them to Ukraine. So in other words, you're literally, dare I say, stealing, might not be the right word, but essentially taking from Iran weapons that are manufactured by Iran, and then you're giving them to Ukraine, potentially. Now, that's pretty wild. Now, remember, uh, Iran backs the Houthis, who create a lot of problematic issues in the region of the Middle East, but now potentially taking thousands of assault rifles and ammunition, seizing those and transferring them to Ukraine would be against UN, the UN arms embargo. Here's actually a Wall Street Journal ar uh, article talking about exactly that. 
It actually says here, the U.S. has provided Ukraine with more than 100 million rounds of small arms ammunition as of this week, 13,000 grenade launchers, guns, and rifles, according to the Pentagon. And at the rate at which Ukraine is expending ammunition, which is substantially greater than the current rate of production, there are calls on ending the United Nations arms embargo requiring the U.S. and the allies and its allies to destroy, store, or rid seized weapons. But now you've got the United States seizing weapons from Iran, either being transported from Iran to Houthis or directly from Houthis, and potentially thinking about sending them to Ukraine. So think about how, how you're setting up for this sort of world war, where on one side you have Russia with its now loaded up strategic tactical nuclear missiles in combination with Belarus or supported by Belarus, which is important because that's where the Minsk 1 and 2 peace accords were signed, which are essentially torn up now. So again, on one side, you've got Russia, Belarus, Iran, who, by the way, Iran is now considering building a drone factory 600 miles east of Moscow so they can make somewhere around 6,000 kamikaze drones with stronger engines to travel further and faster to dodge uh, Ukrainian anti-suicide drone defenses. And you have this combination solidifying, again, with these factories now being placed potentially within Russia itself so Iran can profit off the war but not have the risk of having to transport those weapons from Iran to Russia where they could get captured by the United States and then actually be given to, the, uh, to Ukraine. Instead, Iran's like, we'll just build a factory inside Russia so you can move the product directly from within Russia to the front lines. Anyway, so on one side, you've got Russia, Belarus, and Iran. On the other side, you've got obviously the United States, Germany, the United Kingdom, uh, Spain, Portugal, Canada, France. But listen to this. The United Kingdom is doubling down on their aggressive posture. Rishi uh, Sunak, who took over from Liz Truss's uh, very brief stint as uh, prime minister, who uh, didn't outlast a head of lettuce. Anyway, Mr. Sunak is now urging a double down in supporting Ukraine, but is also pledging that Ukraine should indeed become a member of NATO. North Atlantic uh, a treaty organization. This, this would be problematic. In fact, many say it's the entire reason Russia invaded Ukraine in the first place is because NATO keeps expanding uh, towards Russia and Russia wants a buffer between itself and NATO. Uh, now you've got the United States calling for joint ammo purchases between all of them and then also transferring ammo and weapons seized from Iran uh, to Ukraine. So you've got that one side. But now, listen to this. You potentially have China going from a nuclear, or sort of from a, from a neutral posture, I should say, to potentially one that is provoked now by the Chinese weather balloon and potentially now wanting to back Russia with actual lethal weapons support for Russia. And I'm going to play a video here in a moment, but I want you to think about how this is setting up so far. Again, Russia, Belarus, Iran, China. On the other side, U.S., Germany, U.K., France, Canada, Spain, Portugal. It's not looking good. Then, of course, you've got tensions in sort of the, the middle countries as well, like Turkey and Greece having their own sort of fighting going on. It's sort of like an offshoot, uh, offshoot of fighting over here. 
and then you've got Taiwan and Japan supporting the United States with South Korea. It's all a mess. But take a listen to this uh, two-minute report here, and uh, we'll listen to this together, and then I'll add some more commentary. Here we go. Okay. Hold on. <laughs> It'd be nice, Kevin, if you actually would play the audio. You have to turn the audio on for it to work for people. Goodness gracious, you gotta, you gotta unmute it. I still have it. Better, but it's not about. It, it might... Sorry. Okay. Apparently, I can't get this going. There the go. pace was brisk as the U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken headed off for private talks with his Chinese counterpart Wang Yi. The meeting arranged on the sidelines of the Munich Security Conference. It was the first top-level meeting between the two superpowers since the U.S. shot down what it says was a Chinese spy balloon. Keep in mind, there has now been talk uh, between the United States and China, which is good because initially China didn't answer a phone call after we shot down their spy balloon. Now, there are a lot of murmuring saying, obviously, China's like, dude, it was a weather balloon. It blew off course. Obviously, the United States is like, no, it's a spy balloon. Obviously, the mainstream media is supporting the narrative that it's a spy balloon. And I think we widely believe it's a spy balloon. Although we were supposed to shoot it down and then look at the parts and then show the world, look at all this spy technology that Russia was flying above us. And so far there's been quiet, which is raising the question of, okay, well, what if it really was just a weather balloon? It's insane because you just almost don't even really know what to believe anymore. But what we do know is things are getting more and more tense not less tense. Let's keep listening in. <gasps> Whoa. The incident triggered a major rift with Mr. Blinken cancelling a planned trip to Beijing. Mr. Secretary, how did the meeting go? The talks lasted just over an hour. China sent a surveillance balloon uh, over our territory, violating our sovereignty, violating uh, international law. And I told him quite simply that that was unacceptable and can never happen again. China maintains it was just a civilian balloon that blew off course. Regrettably. All right, we don't have to listen to all this part. Let's, let me just fast forward here to the, what Blinken says. That China is considering providing lethal support to Russia in its aggression against Ukraine. Uh, and I made clear that that would have uh, serious consequences. That's the most important part right there, is Blinken, just yesterday in an interview with Meet the Press, said China is considering sending lethal weapons to Russia to support Russia. Now, China has been uh, sending uh, supplies and selling supplies to Russia, but they've so far been non-lethal. And that's because the Chinese government has been trying to, you know, minimize tensions between the United States to minimize additional sanctions. Of course, this whole weather balloon debacle kind of made those things worse. And now it's leading to China. All right. Maybe we do want to end up selling lethal weapons to Russia. So what you have is basically a giant SH-9T show going on. Because again, you have the United States thinking about somehow convincing the United Nations, which is supposed to be pretty much everyone in the world, with the exception of, of uh, very few, but you're supposed to have the United Nations providing sort of neutrality between everyone. But now the United States is potentially pressuring the United Nations to remove their weapons and arms embargoes, allowing them to take weapons that were basically seized, which is just a nice way of saying stolen from Iran, and giving them to Ukraine. At the same time as you've got 
what really is setting up to start looking like two major axes. Russia, Belarus, Iran, China, US, Japan, South Korea, United Kingdom, France, Spain, Portugal, Canada, so on and so forth. Yikes. It's just not good. And I don't think it's a very good idea that people like Rishi Sunak are saying, we need to double down on Ukraine becoming a member of NATO. Even though we know that's what Ukraine wants, that's kind of the whole reason a lot of this started. It's obviously a lot more involved, but we already have the idea uh, that, that you could see Finland, for example, separately get voted into NATO, which is also stone's throw from Russia. Remember when, uh, uh, when, when you had the first uh, incursions into Ukraine, you actually had a lot of Russians flee Russia itself uh, through, uh, uh, through the trains to Finland. They're that directly connected. Uh, anyway, this is wild. I think it's, uh, it's uh, you know, should, should, you should be paying a lot of attention to what's going on here and how things are developing because the posturing is getting worse and not better. And I don't just mean verbal posturing either. It was just last week the Financial Times was reporting that Russia is setting up uh, a, a essentially rows of their air force on the border of Ukraine preparing for a larger incursion. That would include helicopters and jets, fighter jets, and the Financial Times arguing that Russia's uh, air force is actually pretty unscathed from this war so far. It's just not good. It's just not good. Now, A. Salam over here says, FUD, FUD, nothing's gonna happen. You know, what's interesting is when people say FUD, I actually think it's a very uneducated phrase to use FUD uh, because it implies that what someone is saying is fake news, right? FUD carries the connotation of fake news because people use it in the same way. Oh, that's just FUD. But fear, uncertainty, and doubt is often based on fact, not fake news. And so when people use the phrase FUD, I actually think, and this isn't to be offensive to this person, but I think it's, um, I think it's uneducated to use the word FUD. So I would stop using the word FUD. Uh, I, I would say, I don't, you're welcome to say, I don't think it's going to happen. Just like what Ukrainians said the night before the incursion. You know, I, I had a connection with someone in Ukraine the night before on February 23rd, 2020. The night before. And they said, this is just Western hysteria. Nothing's going to happen. Russia's not going to invade. The very next day the invasion happens, I send off another email. I'm like, dude, are you okay? And they're like, yeah, we had to flee to Sicily. And I love this person to death. Like, I'm super worried. And obviously I care about everyone's lives. But like, this was a, a, a near and dear connection to me. So I think it's important to remember that uh, using the phrase FUD is not a way to discount reality. And the reality is we have problems that are escalating not de-escalating. All right. Uh, ha, ha, ha. <laughs> Fud you. <laughs> Fine. It's <laughs> a good one. Jeez. Uh, oh yeah. I mean, that's not even just. I mean, this. I mean, then, then of course you got to look at you know obviously what's going on in Israel as well. I mean, that's just like. That's just the age-old war that keeps going, uh, which is, is not to say it's, it's not terrible what's happening. Uh, you know, uh, 
Israel and 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 Palestine. Of course, you. Yeah, I, I, I don't want to go down that rabbit hole right now. It's just, I don't know. It's it's all terrible. Uh, anyway, all right. So, yeah, China literally wrote the book on covert warfare. Act like a friend, but secretly do everything you can to destroy them. <laughs> it sounds very. Um, uh, Art of the Deal Trumpian, huh? Which actually was a good book. But it's funny because every time I mention that, I get like a hundred comments of people going, did you know Trump didn't actually write that book? <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, it was co-authored, maybe mostly authored by that other person. Anyway. Uh, it's leverage. <laughs> Let's go down the rabbit hole. <laughs> All right, maybe next time. We still got a lot of other stuff to cover. Oh, man. Yeah, yeah, All right, so so that's uh, that's our Ukraine talk. Talked Fed. I think we got to talk Catalyst now because even outside all of all this like war and craziness, we have uh, we have Catalyst, which is pretty and crazy. The real FUD is the coupon code that is set to expire this Wednesday. <laughs> there are no more coupon codes. We only have flash sales around here now. We're done with coupon codes on building your wealth. Just flash sales. By the way, big shout out to uh, the uh, many of you who have been shadowing me over the past few days. Uh, it's been pretty phenomenal. Uh, we've, we've gotten to see some really cool things and had some really awesome discussions. And, and, and hopefully, I've been able to motivate you in your businesses. A lot of entrepreneurs I'm seeing. I mean, coaches, uh, uh, investment advisors, uh, real estate professionals, uh, some some you know entrepreneurs building uh, tech businesses like coding boot camps. Uh, who is uh, I gotta I gotta we're we're gonna end up sharing some of the stories from some of these folks once we uh, we edit it together. But uh, I want to I want to share some of the shout outs that we have for some of those folks. But just in general, it's really cool meeting y'all in person. Really really cool. So, uh, you know, I, I know we obviously we have like, you know, our course member live streams and that where we get to connect a little bit more, but I, I love meeting y'all in person. So I really appreciate y'all. So, yeah, John does everything, says big shout out to Kevin. Oh, thank you. Why do you keep wearing that sweater? You know, I wore this sweater today solely for the people who keep asking me why I wear this sweater. <laughs> it's like, it's, it's not Christmas, put up your sweater. And I'm like, it's the most, it, it's like, why, why do I wear thick overcoats in the summer? Because it's the ironic and annoying thing to do. And I love it because people like lose themselves over things that really don't matter. And I think it's, I think it's like literally what we should be doing is making fun of ourselves for things that don't matter. <laughs> uh, it's starting to become industrial war. Well, you're not wrong about that. <laughs> Y'all love the... The sweater, bullish, bearish. Okay. You know, I think I think Bitcoin will follow the risk cycle uh, of a uh, not V-shaped recovery, but Nike swoosh. I personally would rather be in, in certain stocks that I think have have really incredible value right now. Uh, but that that doesn't that doesn't mean that doesn't make me a bear on on uh, you know Bitcoin, for example, not at all. You know, if you want to know my thoughts on three D printing, it's a fair question. But if you want to know my thoughts on uh, 3D printing, you should type into YouTube, meet Kevin Nano Dimensions, and you'll get my real thoughts on 3D printing. And let's just say they're not bullish, but you should see why. 
you're forecasting Rivian will go to bankruptcy. I mean, I think they're gonna dilute their shareholders to crap to prevent that from happening by you know having to basically raise capital to exceed their market cap. I think they would be smart to take advantage of any kind of risk on rallies we get and raise capital. I think that would be very smart. I think they are likely to do that as well. It's kind of like when Bed Bath & Beyond meme rallies, you know, they just dilute their shareholders right away. The problem is Rivian has not had much of a rally. It's basically been straight down. It's because they've got a terrible business model. Now, don't get me wrong. I was in a Rivian just the other day, and I have to say, it is phenomenal. Like, the car is very, very nice. The problem with that is it's very, very unprofitable. I actually, I actually made a joke. I'm like, you realize the customer wins when the company is willing to lose, you know, what, 20,000 bucks a car they make or whatever, uh, not even including operating expenses. We're talking gross margin because they're giving you all this crazy stuff. The wood paneling, the halo styled interiors, and, and it's, I mean, it feels like a warthog, but like a classy warthog. I mean, I was blown away when I went into the sucker. Uh, really, really cool. So I'll, I'll share a video that this was when I went to Reading. The realtor that I visited when uh, when I went to Reading uh, uh, had a uh, had a Rivian, and I was able to uh, drive around in it. So, yep, yep, yep. All right, let's do some catalysts. Catalysts, catalysts. All right, what do we got? Oh wait, you know what? We gotta try this. We gotta try this. I got I gotta get better at this. All right, let's see if I can pull it off. So in between figuring out what's going on. I need to play suspense music. Does this work? Is this thing on? <laughs> no, that's not that good. We, let's, try, let's try this one. Let's, let's figure one out. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Now we gotta talk catalysts. We've got some big catalysts coming up uh, this week where you've got earnings catalysts, we've got Fed catalysts, we've got inflation catalysts, we've got a lot of catalysts. And what I do not encourage you to do is take a shot every time I say the word catalyst in this video. Even though that would be really entertaining, it probably wouldn't be healthy. And if you want to see the shadow of my pee-pee, Make sure to check out my Instagram story from yesterday morning at Meet Kevin. You can see what the shadow of my PP looks like. But first, we have to talk about catalysts. So, first, we have to understand that the market this year so far has been rallying. We know that. That's pretty obvious. And I want you to see exactly which sectors it's been rallying in because these sectors have some really big earnings coming up. Take a look uh, on screen now. You can see the catalysts here, uh, or, or those that have rallied the most for the year, rather, the sectors that have rallied the most this year. Consumer discretionary up 16.3%, tech up 12.3%, communication services up 13.1%, with uh, negative returns on energy, utilities, healthcare, consumer staples. And what's fascinating is we've got some big catalysts, that's a key word to take a shot, right, uh, for, for this week starting with two big ones on Tuesday. Remember, Monday, the market is closed for President's Day. 
Tuesday, we have Walmart and Home Depot. Uh, those are gonna be big. And the reason they're going to be big is because you end up having a big inside scoop into what's going on with two types of consumers. Actually, really three types of consumers. You have Home Depot, which will let us know how the homeowner spending is, uh, is, is, is transforming. Now remember, what's crazy about this is uh, the people who spend money at Home Depot are 90% homeowners. 90% of people spending money at Home Depot and all those are homeowners doing homeowner projects. And when they stop spending money, it's because they start, they're starting to feel the crimp on homeowner expenses. See, when the market is going up for real estate, people think that spending money on their homes is an investment. That's stupid. That's how to go bankrupt, okay? If you buy a home and you keep doing projects and you keep renovating, you're doing it because you want it and you want to feel good about yourself. It's not an investment. It rarely is an investment. Rarely. And don't think you're part of the rare. You're probably not. If you're watching this and you're like, man, I just did weight and scoting everywhere. The value of my house is way higher now. Wrong. <laughs> anyway, uh, so we're going to learn about the sentiment of households generally wealthier households. People who own real estate are generally wealthier than tenants to the tune of 10 to 20X. Walmart will let us know about two types of consumers. One, your lower to middle end consumer who always shops at Walmart, but also your downgrade customer. It sounds offensive, but I mean, it's true. The wealthier customer who's now going from more expensive stores like maybe a Whole Foods, and they're actually going shopping at Walmart, leading companies like Whole Page, I mean, Whole Foods to actually start reducing prices for their foods because they're realizing they have to compete with Walmart because they're losing their customer base to Walmart. So getting reports from Walmart and, and, and Home Depot, really important for understanding what's going on with discretionaries, but also understanding what's going on with staples. Really big catalyst there for Tuesday morning. And they could also give us an, a heads up into an inflationary impetus of the market. What is the, What are those earnings calls going to tell us about pricing? Very, very important. It's some of the most important leading data you could look at. People hear me say earnings as leading catalysts, and they're like, nah, man, nah, man, I like, I like lagging stuff, like, like unemployment reports. Uh-uh, man, uh-uh. Walmart and Home Depot, that's where it's at. So <clears throat> pay attention to those Tuesday. Tuesday after the bell. Uh, actually, you're also, before the bell, you're going to get some Philly Fed surveys. Fine, we'll cover that data. Uh, Tuesday after the bell, you're going to get Coinbase, Palo Alto Networks, Toll Brothers, Caesars, and ZipRecruiter. It should be pretty obvious why these are important. Obviously, with Bitcoin going up, maybe you would expect better earnings for Coinbase, although you should always expect the unexpected when it comes to playing earnings. This is why sometimes playing earnings is actually pretty difficult. Palo Alto Networks, look, if Fortinet and Cloudflare are any guide, they're going to kill it. But then again, maybe that's expected. Toll Brothers, this is your wealthier home builder. How are they doing? We'll find out. Caesars Entertainment, what can we learn about maybe uh, international casinos like Macau, but also Las Vegas. Uh, Zipper, which we expect a boom in really the casinos. ZipRecruiter, how are those leading indicators for job openings and how do they compare to the Jolts report? Indeed.com suggests that job openings are actually flat. That's good. We want job openings flat because we don't want a wage price spiral. Just like what we'll learn on Wednesday morning before the bell when we get data from Fiverr. That'll help us know a little bit about sort of that contract worker. Apple just uh, apparently canned a bunch of contractors and people are a little bit pissed 
who are contractors because they're like, Apple told us we were safe. Apple was bragging about being the company that didn't overhire and so they didn't have to lay off. And they're not laying off. They're just firing contractors, which technically isn't a layoff. When you're a contractor, when work slows down, you get fired. That's called being a contractor. You don't get the phone call anymore. Anyway, overstock, uh, learn a little, maybe a little bit about e-commerce. Wingstop, chicken inflation, look, we already got uh, uh, Tyson food. We already know that uh, there seems to be somehow all of a sudden less demand and less pricing power for chicken than there previously was. So we'll see. Wednesday, after the bell, these are some big ones. Nvidia, whew, what's going on in that chip sector? We know PC demand has been crap, but are we actually starting to see some server demand pick up again? Based on what you're seeing at some of the software companies, maybe, maybe you could actually expect to see some more server demand. Uh, Teladoc, I hate that company, <laughs> but we'll see what happens. <laughs> uh, in case you're wondering why, you could just type into YouTube, meet Kevin Teladoc. Uh, I, I think it's very assembly line, lack of personality uh, or lack of personal relationship uh, service. It's very convenient for just bull crap. Like, dude, I got an ear, ear infection, just prescribe me some antibiotics, damn it, <laughs> right? Um, but uh, but uh, the biggest thing that drives me nuts is how they have in the past and still do propped up their balance sheet with a nonsensical inflated amount of, uh, of, of goodwill. Anyway, again, you can search YouTube for that. So who knows, maybe they'll do great. You could just inverse Kevin on that one. But anyway, Etsy, Lucid, Dutch Bros, Matterport, Lemonade. Now I'm actually excited about Matterport because Matterport has been growing like crazy their user base because they release, release this new camera or module attachment for the iPhones or smartphones that lets you basically use the LiDAR sensor on your phone to do Matterport scans. Now the device is not good. I, I did not like it. Uh, Matterport actually gave it to me for free uh, and I emailed them and I said, I, I am sorry. I, I cannot pitch this, the, the phone version. I love the big boy. Okay, I like it big. I like the big black one. That's the big black the camera device that's the all-in-one and it spins around. It's like really strong and powerful. Amazing, really good. And I'd love to try out their new Matterport 3. I think it's great. Well, the problem is you're in a seasonal cycle or cyclical cycle. Well, you're, you're in the cyclical environment where real estate is slowing down. The, mon the amount of money agents are making is slowing down. And that means the investment agents are going to put out, I think is lower for listings. And so I think you're going to see a drop off uh, in Matterport signups. But again, maybe inverse trade that one because you know it could be wrong. You know, the leading indicators aren't good for Matterport, but then again, the leading indicators were terrible for Airbnb and they smashed it out of the park. <sighs> oh well. Dutch Bros, Lemonade. Lemonade will be interesting because the financials of Lemonade are not great, but their stock has been down so much makes you wonder if they're maybe a little bit closer to the path to profitability. I don't think so, but we'll see. We do also, in the middle of the day, get the Federal Reserve minutes. I, I don't know how much those are actually going to matter this week, but everybody will hold their breath for a hot moment on those minutes. Thursday, before the bell, you've got uh, Alibaba, Wayfair. You'll get some GDP annualized numbers. Thursday after the bell, you'll get Block, which Square. Uh, you'll get Intuit, Beyond Me, Carvana, Autodesk, Booking Holdings, MP Materials, and Open Door. Boy, Open Door sucks. I, you know, every single Open Door listing I've been going through has been something they substantially overpaid for. And honestly, I think they just don't care about their listings. 
I went through a listing, it literally had a dead mouse. And you know, the smoke detectors are all yoinked off on all of them. It's like, these are some of the most trashy properties you could go through. I pity the fools who buy open door listings because they're so poorly put together. They're so disgusting. Everyone that I've been through, I have not seen a good open door listing. And hopefully the people at open door wake up and get off their ass and do something. Because if they're wondering why their inventory isn't selling, it's because they suck. They're literally terrible at managing real estate. I really feel like the executives don't actually go look at their real estate. They don't even know what they're doing with real estate. Uh, it, it's a company that quite frankly, I cannot wait to go bankrupt. Uh, and, and that's, I don't have any shorts against Open Door. You know, I, I don't want people who work at Open Door to lose their jobs. But let's just put it this way. People at Open Door, they should like open their eyes probably a little bit and go, yeah, this company is going downhill. Uh, so just be careful. Like, I don't want you to be blindsided when you lose your job because they've already done two rounds of what, 25% layoffs or whatever. But it's just just go through some of the open door listings and tell me your opinion. And, and, and I don't know, my experience has been terrible. That's just my opinion. It doesn't mean the whole company is like that, but I don't know. Anyway, so they report Thursday. Uh, since I'm so bearish, they'll probably go to the moon, but whatever. If they're smart, if their stock rallies, they, they will dump on that rally and raise equity because they need it to survive. Carvana is another one that needs it to survive. They should dump on every rally that happens. Autodesk will be really interesting because I think it'll give us a little bit of insight into those that recurring revenue model as well from uh, architects. You know, are we seeing sort of a slowdown there for building and construction? Uh, booking holdings, travel, you know, beyond fad. Uh, into it, you know, leading into tax season, Square, consumer balances. You could get some a little bit of insight from Square on consumers uh, from, from existing bank balances. Friday, you actually get a big inflation catalyst. Friday, you get PCE, personal consumption expenditures, expecting the deflator number to come in at 0.5% month over month, core 0.4%, year over year 5%. Should be pretty similar to PCE uh, or uh, to CPI. Uh, in other words, wouldn't be surprised to see it come in hot, but uh, who knows? Slightly different survey, and it is the Fed's preferred inflation gauge. We get uh, University of Michigan sentiment. We get Cinemark reporting, which is a nice leading tell for AMC coming up Feb 28th. New home sales expected to be 620,000. New home sales growth expected to be 0.7% month over month on Friday. So that, my friends, is a set of catalysts coming up for the week ahead. All right. Then you go in and hit suspense music. No, I got, I got to work on that. There it is. Oh dear. Oh man. All right. So somebody here says, I just read an article about lucids, uh, or, uh, lawsuits in Germany, Tesla versus customers who feel damaged because Musk said in 17, uh, the range should be at least uh, 800 kilometers. Would love your opinions. You know, there are always going to be lawsuits. And I think one of the things that you see uh, pretty regularly is this, uh, 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 the, the lawsuits end up like providing more range, like advertising almost for Tesla. It's kind of wild, especially when, when Tesla, when and if it wins. But even if it loses, they get so much coverage. The coverage just sells more of these cars. I mean, everyone in a cold climate knows that, you know, in cold, batteries don't last as long. 
But in case you want to know, since you're talking about Germany, take a look at this. This is why you should follow me on Twitter, by the way. So I posted this. Germany tested 29 electric vehicles to see which car would make it furthest in negative 10 to negative 5 degree cold winter weather. Out of 29 models, the top two performers were the Tesla Model S and the Tesla Model X. Now, if you actually pop open the article and you drop down to the chart, you can actually see that all of the batteries lost range. Every single model lost range. So it's not abnormal for batteries to lose uh, some of their, their battery capacity in a colder environment. That's not abnormal. Uh, so so I, I wouldn't personally be very worried about that. Mm, mm, mm. You know, if you're wondering about ARC, what I highly encourage you to do is type into YouTube, Meet Kevin Confronts ARC. Uh, meet Kevin Confronts ARC. Because I just posted a really good interview. Uh, confronting, that's the title. Confronting ARC Invest. Tesla, ChatGPT, AI, and more. Highly encourage you check that out. Uh, I think... Somebody did time. Somebody was really nice and did timestamps for the whole thing. I posted the video while I was on a plane, uh, so it's the pinned comment, and I I don't know why for some reason the you know their their timestamps don't show up as the little breakdown. But but anyway, pinned comment has timestamps. So interview was awesome. Well, thank you for that. I appreciate you saying that. You watched that today. Oh, that's awesome. Thank you. All right. Someone's in Hawaii, lucky. I wanna go to Hawaii. You know I can't make it to Hawaii? Like these are serious first world problems here, okay? My plane cannot make it to Hawaii. This is so embarrassing. Like the PP is just not long enough to stretch to Hawaii. It's very disappointing, I have to say. Ice vehicles lose range, but most people don't really know their miles per gallon. Hmm, good point. That's really interesting. Oh. Uh... Tesla needs to go bankrupt. A and you have a... See, I think you're like a parody account because you've got a clown as your icon. Uh, yeah. And <laughs> Are you going to buy the Rivian electric bike? You know, I actually think that's one of the biggest mistakes that Rivian is making. Is they're kind of pulling the Arkimoto where like... And, and I warned about this as being a problem over a year ago. I'm like, Arkimoto needs to focus on coming up with one concept and then printing it. But rather what's happening is companies are like so bad at manufacturing. They just come up with more ideas and then they think they can license those ideas even though they're already losing money at it. They haven't figured out scale. That's probably one of the biggest uh, advantages Tesla has. So we'll see. Anyway, I think that does it today for the Meet Kevin Report number 28. I appreciate y'all being here. Thank you so much. Make sure to subscribe, share the videos. I'm here every single day, whether the market is open or closed. It doesn't matter. We do these live streams every single day. They usually start, my goal is to start them at 4.30 a.m. Pacific time, whether it's a weekend or not. Although sometimes I start them at 5 a.m. and that just means I was a lazy bum the day before uh, or I was really busy with real estate or flying or, or whatever. Uh, whatever excuse I could come up with. My goal is to try to get them to start at 4.30 every day. And then I do post them afterwards on uh, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and otherwise. Thank you so much. We'll see you soon. Bye.